Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. Um, John chapter 9 tells us about Jesus that as he, Jesus, passed by, and we're going to get back to that in a minute. That's actually pretty significant. As he passed by, uh, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or, uh, slide just disappeared there, but that, hey, that's why I got the book in front of me. Hold on, let me get down here. <laughs> It was Jesus' answer is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's key. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed. God wants to put his works on display in you. We must work, he says. We must work, we, plural, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day because night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground, made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed. I like how the Bible uses a very spiritual word when talking about mud. This is the mud anointing right here. Then he anointed uh, the man's eyes with the mud. That's, 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 that's King James Version of he, he slathered it on there. <laughs> and said to him, Go wash. Well, that's funny. He wasn't dirty before he put it on. (laughs) Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. The word Siloam means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. His eyes started working. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar uh, were saying, Is not this the man who used uh, to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No. Looks kind of like him, though. He kept on saying, however... I am the man. I thought of titling this sermon series, I am the man. I thought Dennis might appreciate that, but you know, I, you know, I thought I, I decided to go with a little more spiritual title today. Uh, instead of I am the man, we're calling, we're calling this sermon the, the blessing in the blindness. What, what we see in this passage, there's several uh, layers to this passage, as is with everything that John wrote in John's gospel. So I, John is my favorite gospel writer because he has so many layers to stuff. Um, I mean, he's, he's always saying more than he's saying. Um, but one of the layers is that there is a blessing in this man's blindness. Um, I, I don't have it on the screen, but if, if, you, if you have a Bible and you turn all the way to the end of this story, which is at the end of the chapter. I mean, this story takes up the whole chapter, all, all chapter 9. I mean, all of these 40, what, 42 verses, 41 verses um, are, are comprised of this story. Uh, it's a very uh, elaborate story. You don't find that a lot in the Gospels. Usually God, Jesus does something and then moves on. But this story, John spends a lot of time talking about what happened after the miracle. Um, basically, there's a whole lot of conversations going on. So uh, after the man is, is, is healed of his blindness, um, the Pharisees bring him in, right? So he has this conversation with his neighbors, and he, they say, are you the man? And he says, I am the man. Um, after he confirms that he is the man, then the Pharisees bring him in, and they say, are you the man? And they say, yep, I am the man. Well, then the Pharisees bring his parents 
parents in and say, is he the man? Yep, he is the man. Uh, then they bring him back in and say, are you really, really sure um, that Jesus did this for you or was it God? You know, they say, how about you give glory to God? We know that Jesus is not a good man because, well, he did this on the Sabbath. He stirred up mud on the Sabbath day. That was against one of their, I think it was 13 rules that the Talmud had added um, to the law of God. So we know that he, it couldn't have been Jesus. You give glory um, to God. And I love, I love that line that the blind man says. He says, well, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I do know, and this is the most popular statement from this story. He says, I once was blind, but now I see. Now, we, we, we get excited about that because we like the seeing part. But there's actually 50% uh, of that testimony is I once was blind. And so being the sort of backward preacher that I am, I'm not going to talk about seeing so much as I'm going to talk about blindness. Um, because that seems to be a major component to his testimony, to his story. I once was blind, but now I see. And then in verse uh, 35, um, the man, he ends up getting kicked out of the temple, by the way. He gets kicked out of the temple, and that's huge for him because that means he's kicked out of Judaism. Nowadays, if you leave a church, you can go attend another church. Um, but in this context, this man, when he's kicked out of the temple, he is not allowed in any synagogue or any temple to worship God at all, period. He's kicked out of Judaism. Um, he, he's looking for a new religion. <laughs> and that's when Jesus finds him. So Jesus seeks out this man. I think it's so interesting. After he's been healed, after he's been interrogated, after he's been kicked out, uh, Jesus seeks him out. It says, when Jesus heard that he had been cast out, uh, he found him, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, that's an Old Testament title for the Messiah. And he answered and said, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. That's the past. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you right now. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. The word worship that occurs like six times in the New Testament, it, it means to bow down and to give adoration to God. You think about that. What kind of faith did this guy have to have to see Jesus? He's, 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 he's a human. And Jesus says, I am God. And the man says, I believe. This is actually the kind of faith that this guy ends up having at the end of the story is greater than the kind of faith that the disciples have at this point. Because when you look at the beginning of the story, the disciples don't call him the son of man. They call him rabbi, teacher. <laughs> I once was blind, but now I see. I don't think he's just talking about a physical sight that he received because the disciples had a physical sight and they still saw a rabbi. This guy saw God wrapped in human flesh. This is interesting. Uh, the, the, whole, the whole way the story starts, we can go back to verse 1. I, I see in verse 1 of chapter 9, it starts off with this phrase that as he passed by. Now, the question is, Jesus is passing by. Well, obviously, he's going somewhere. But really, what's really interesting to me is where he's coming from. He is coming from the temple. In fact, the beggar would have been waiting outside the temple. The beggar would have been sitting outside the temple because this is the Sabbath day. This is when all of the churchgoers go to church. 
And, and the beggars used to congregate outside of the church uh, waiting for the generosity of God's people. And I don't know, sometimes I get, sometimes stuff preaches to me that is not even necessarily in the text. It's just the context. Sometimes the context teaches me a little something because I don't see beggars huddled outside of churches anymore. Okay, mama, tuck your toes under there. This, 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 this is for all the Christians. How, how come, why is it that in South Austin, beggars think they can get more generosity on the corner of 35 and Slaughter than they can in front of the church door? I don't know. Maybe we're pretty far from where we used to be. I just, it's interesting to me that that's where the beggars gathered because I've been going to church all my life and I've never seen a beggar sit outside of a church door. I've never seen them once rely on the generosity of God's people. <laughs> and I think it's a little bit backward currently. But these beggars are all huddled up out there and Jesus is passing by. Why is he passing by? Well, if you look at chapter 8, if you turn back in, in your Bible to John chapter 8, you see that there's this interesting story where Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching, right? And this is, what, this is how they used to roll. Um, back in the day, uh, God's people, they would gather in Jerusalem on the Sabbath um, or in a local um, synagogue, and, and they would come to worship. And on the outside court, there would be tons of rabbis that would teach. Um, they, would, they, would, they would have these steps, and you might have 50 rabbis on a Sabbath sitting there on their step with um, people gathering around listening to them teach about the Bible. This is one of the reasons why the Jewish leaders hated Jesus, because they were jealous of him, because he stole all of their listeners. <laughs> like, like they stopped listening to him, and they all gathered around him. This is huge area, this outer court area where, where the men and the women could, could mingle and could learn about God and could talk about God. And, and there are all these different rabbis and teachers and biblical scholars who are ready to, to share what they've learned from the Old Testament and from the book of Proverbs and from all of this great stuff. And then everybody goes over and listens to this guy. And they became jealous of him. Now, of course, this does, this, this scripture, I mean, the Bible's not really applicable today. That's, that doesn't happen anymore among preachers. They don't get jealous at all when people go over to other places. It's not, I mean, they, I mean, it doesn't speak to our day at all. Um, I'm just saying, it's just, it's just interesting that that's what got them so jealous and so angry. Because in John chapter 8, it says that everybody was listening to Jesus. And so the whole, all the other rabbis got a day off. And so what they did with their day off was they said, well, okay, if this guy thinks he's such a big shot, we're going to, we're going to really test him. And so they found a woman caught in adult, adultery, and there's a lot of uh, backstories to this. They brought her before him, and they said, hey, uh, our law says she should be stoned. What do you say? Uh, stone means they had large rocks with them. Uh, <laughs> you have to define this in Austin. It doesn't mean <laughs> what you think it means. It means rocks, sharp rocks. And they throw them at people until they die, okay? It's, it's not a nice experience. Um, and uh, so they all come with their weapons. They come with their rocks. And Jesus is, if you remember the story, Jesus gets down in the dirt and he starts writing something. And of course, everybody uh, from the early church fathers until now, they all guess, well, what was he writing in the dirt? And uh, we don't really know. Now, many of the early church fathers felt like he was writing out the names of the men who were in the circle, who had the rocks with them, ready to stone her. And he was writing down their names and then next to their names, writing down their sins. 
Uh, that's an interesting thought. That's actually in some of the uh, not early manuscripts, some of the later manuscripts. It's actually in there because they really felt like that was the case. There was a pope in the uh, thir- uh, fourth or fifth century um, who he said that Jesus was writing um, a phrase uh, in Latin, which means dust accuses dust. I always thought that was interesting because that's kind of what's happening, right? The Bible says that we are all dust that we are made from the dirt in the book of Genesis. God, when God made man, he formed man from the dirt of the ground and he breathed life into him. And so um, dust we are and then dust we return to when we die. And that's what one Pope said. He felt like that's what Jesus was writing, that dust is always accusing dust. Dirt is always talking about how dirty other dirt is. <laughs> And I don't know if he had any actual connection to really know what Jesus was writing, Um, but it's interesting. It's interesting that whatever he was writing, um, he looked up from his writing and he he said, whoever is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And everybody put their rocks down and walked away. Well, Jesus didn't end the service there. Church was still rolling. And so he continued his sermon and he got more explicit about who he was. I think perhaps because this is a visual demonstration of what he came to do. He came to fulfill the law. And so he is, yes, yes, he is coming on the, on the back end of the law. He hasn't come to abolish it, but he has come to make it full, to complete it, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so he begins sharing about who he is and and they begin talking back and forth to him saying, well, we are sons of Abraham. And finally, at the end of his, his, his lengthy discussion, he says, well, before Abraham was, I am. That means he is, he is claiming to be God. And they understood that. He, he, because they said, how can you claim to know Abraham when you're not even over 50 years old? And he said, well, before Abraham was, I am. And when he said that, these guys who had put their, their rocks down, this is what they did. Reached back down, <laughs> picked it back. Just like religious folks, they, 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 same rock, new target. They, they found a new target. It wasn't going to be the lady this time. It was going to be the preacher. And because legally he had, you know, in their books blasphemed, he had claimed equality with God. And so they were angry because he had offended them uh, because he called them sons of the devil. Uh, and they were also uh, legally right to stone. So they're picking up these sharp objects. And so Jesus is like, all right, everybody I'm about to close, bow your heads and close your eyes. And he's like, John, come on, let's right this way. Let's go. Let's. And he, no, no, the, the Bible says that he hid himself. We don't know what that means. He just, he, he snuck out, literally. So Jesus and his disciples are sneaking out of the temple. And that's where we come to John chapter nine, verse one, as he passed by. He wasn't casually strolling. His disciples weren't just like making weird questions, right? Like, like a lot of times, like when I've heard preachers, whenever they talk about the disciples, they make them out to be idiots, you know, like blundering fools who just don't really understand anything. And they're always shooting off these stupid questions. Oh, who sinned, that man or this man? And like, it's like they don't know what's going on. But actually, if you understand where the disciples just came from, they are running for their lives. 
You don't pop off random questions about, oh, what do you think about that guy's outfit? Do you think he got it at H&M or Forever 21? I don't know. You're not just like spouting out sort of theoretical uh, assumptions about people's life. No, they are, I mean, if you are running for your life, you're trying to sneak out of this massive place. Guards are everywhere. I'm going to be like, so should we take this route or that route? Like, you know, how about you split up? You guys go that way. We'll go this way. We'll head them off of the pass. You know, I got some marbles in my bag. We'll throw them down there. Maybe they'll trip over them. I mean, you're trying to figure out like how you're going to live, right? These guys were just threatened, literally threatened for their lives. They're not just asking dumb questions. That's why I think the fact that the disciples asked this question is so important because if you think about it, Jesus would not have healed this man if it wasn't for the disciples. It was the disciples who made him stop and say, hey, what about this guy? Jesus is passing by. That means he's going, he's going, he's on his way. He's gone, he, he gone, uh, that's what he's doing. He's not, he's not casually strolling through the marketplace. Oh, where would you like to eat? No, he is on his way. And the, it's the disciples that say, hold up, hold up, hold up. Hold up. We got a question for you, Jesus. And why, do they, why are they so persistent about this question? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that they're probably shocked of what just happened in there. Because, you know, Jesus came, met many of them in, in their regular lives. He said, follow me. They left everything and followed him. They left their families, they left their careers, their jobs, they left everything because they believed that he was the Messiah. They believed that he was who he said that he was. And it's like, it's kind of like, it's kind of like when, like when you see something, you just expect everybody to see it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like if you have a bad hair day, you just expect everybody to know you have a bad hair day. If you, if, you know, like, like uh, there was one time I was preaching and um, I got done preaching, it was a youth camp. And I sat down, and like when I sat down, like my pants did this little spread thing, you know? And I noticed my zipper was, was, was undone. The whole time I had been preaching, my fly was open. And I thought, oh man, everybody saw that. Everybody's gonna be talking to me about that. But no, nobody saw it. But, but it's like when you see something, you think everybody sees it. So the disciples see Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And now he's in the temple. Now he is, he is, he is being so blunt and so open. <gasps> people, the religious leaders are going to see it. They're going to embrace him. This is going to be awesome. And the exact opposite happens. He redeems the woman, which was awesome, and then gets rejected by the religion. Not just rejected, but threatened with his life. This has to be a massive shock to some guys who saw this all along. They saw it coming. We were going to go into the temple. We were going to talk to the religious leaders. We were finally going to convince them. Uh, and Jesus was finally going to stop talking all these parable stuff. And he was actually going to just be real with them. And this is what he was. He was actually real. And they didn't accept him. They didn't see it. They picked up rocks to kill him. They got their weapons out. And these guys are shocked. And as they're going, I just wonder if, if something they saw, I wonder if as they passed this blind guy, I wonder if they, if they thought, hey, that's a whole lot like those guys. They just came from a room full of blind men who the Messiah is standing right in front of them, telling them exactly what he was prophesied to tell. He, everything is coming to pass and they can't even see it. And so I think Jesus answers their question. He doesn't say, that's a dumb question. Just 
shut up, let's go. He, he, he answers their question because it's not a dumb question because they are linking, I believe they're linking what happened in there with what's happening in this guy's body right here. There's, this, there's a parallel, there's a parable almost. It's like, man, this is like the Jewish people. It's like, man, we've been waiting for the Messiah all of our lives. We've been, for centuries, we've been writing about him and talking about him. And now that he's suddenly here, we're like a blind guy. Just, we can't, we can't even see him. We're just, we're, we're just holding up our cup, which is what they used to do. Hold up a cup and say, alms for the poor. Please just give me something. Because they can't see. And the injustice, the, the absolute blindness of the religious leaders, I think caused the disciples to say, you know what? They didn't get that message in the mud. <laughs> Whatever that was that Jesus was writing, it didn't sink in. He's telling them they're not hearing. And even Jesus, if you read John chapter 8, said, like, are you even serious right now? Really? I'm telling you where I came from, who I came from, who I am, where I'm going, and you don't even, you don't have a clue. They're, they're so shocked at the blindness that they're asking Jesus the question that we always ask when we are shocked by deficiencies in our life or blindness, disabilities, or sickness, or cancer. Brutal things are happening in our lives, and I think it's dumb to, to pretend like they're not, because, because they are, because we live in a real world, and this blindness affects us all, and it, it affects us in different ways, and there are different kinds of, of things that we're suffering through. Maria, I talked about Maria. She's been, uh, we've been praying for her brother for a while. Her, uh, her brother's name is John, who had pancreatic cancer. He passed away. She texted me um, Friday, late Friday night, I think it was. And so we're praying for her. She's dealing with grief. She's dealing with the loss of a loved one. My family dealt with that with my uncle uh, over uh, back uh, over the summer. Many of us are dealing with, with losses and with grief. And, and, and it's, you know, I mean, like, like I, I, just because I'm a pastor, just because I'm a preacher, doesn't mean I'm not in the real world. Like, like Roe doesn't keep me locked up in a glass box and just let me out on Sundays, you know what I'm saying? Like, like this, like, this guy uh, called me over Christmas break, and over Christmas break, somebody I care about, um, he's not, not here in the church, but somebody that I really care about and minister to, um, called me up and said that his son uh, told him over Christmas break about how, uh, he had been abused by a neighbor a couple years before. And now his family is in upheaval, and they're, they're dealing with a lot of tears, a lot of questions why, how come we didn't see it, how come we didn't stop, how come we didn't know, a lot of, a lot of anger, a lot of, you know, just, I mean, just confusion, a lot of a CPS being called, and they're having to go through all the legal motions, they're having to walk through all of that. Uh, counseling, they're getting, I mean, they're doing everything they know to do. They're asking for prayer. They're crying out to God. But let's face it, it, it it's not good. And the stuff that happens in our life, the blindness uh, the, is not good. You look at this man's life. It wasn't a good life. God, you know, he wasn't blessed and highly flavored. He was, uh, he was, he was poor. He couldn't even afford to pay his own rent. He had to get to beg for his next meal because of his blindness. And the big question, whenever we come into contact with this, with this, with this, this, this barrier, is God, why? 
Right? That's basically what they're asking. They're asking God for the cause. They're asking Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or, 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 or his parents? And in many ways, he's asking, they're asking, what's up with, with those guys in there? Why are they so blind? Is it because of their sin or is it because of their forefathers? Why? Because we're always looking for the cause. We always want to know if we can trace it back, right? If we, can under, if we can wrap our heads around it, if we can understand it, then maybe next time we can prevent it. That's what we're thinking. It's like, you know what? Why? How did we get to this point? What brought us here? And Jesus doesn't answer the why. He doesn't answer the process that brought them there because in Jesus's economy, one, knowing why doesn't make any, doesn't make the pain go away. But number two, you, you can waste so much time trying to figure out how you got to where you are that you never spend any time understanding what God is going to do with you from where you are. And so maybe I'm speaking to somebody, that's what 2017 was, a huge waste of time trying to figure out what got you to where you are. When God is standing there ready, reaching his hand out, trying to get you to take the next step to where he wants you to be. The question is not, how can we prevent every negative thing from happening? Which, by the way, uh, if, if you're, especially if you're a parent in the room, can I, I'll just share with you what I shared with the person I was talking to. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you are uh, expected to prevent every negative thing from happening to your kids. You're not expected. The Bible doesn't say you are to defend, uh, you know, parents defend your children in the Lord for this is right. I think we should, as best we can, protect them and use, uh, use the brain God's given us to, to provide for them and protect them as best as we can. But, but here's the thing. If, if, if your parenting was graded on, on how well you prevented life from happening, on how well you prevented pain from coming, then God is the worst parent ever. He's the worst father there ever was. I, I, I can testify just in my own life. He's allowed so much junk that didn't need to be there that he could have blocked, that he could have stopped, that in my head didn't even need to be there, wasn't even necessary. Lord, why was this guy born blind? Obviously, it's not your will for him to be blind. It must have been somebody's sin, right? Because everything that's uncomfortable can't be God's will. Everything that's painful can't be God's will. So somebody must have messed up somewhere. If we can figure out who messed up, where they messed up, then maybe we can all prevent all bad things from happening to everybody. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> but, but God himself, said, no, he's blind so that the works of God can be, be revealed in him. It, he, we, we get so consumed with trying to figure out the premise and God is trying to get us to his purpose. Not what brought us to it, but what he's going to bring out of it. Because oftentimes what brings you to it is much different than what brings you out of it. The pain and the disease and the, the difficulty and the sin and the anger and the abuse and the violence that brought us to it we obviously is not God. But what God brings through it and what God brings from it is entirely God. And he allows those things. Clearly, he's sovereign. He could stop all kinds of stuff, but he doesn't. Instead, he, he says, this man was born blind so that the works of God could be 
revealed or displayed. I think it's, it's, it's ironic. The guy was born blind so that he could see. <laughs> because actually, at the end of the story, he's the only one seen around here. We got a room full of blind men in the temple. All their eyes work. They can't figure out what's right in front of them. And then we have this guy whose eyes just started working. And Jesus said, you have seen me. No, 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 no. Last time, Jesus, last time you met him, he was blind. He didn't, he didn't get healed till he went to that pool and washed and stuff. No, no, no. You have seen me. And I'm standing right in front of you. Now you see me with your physical eyes, but you saw me with your faith before. There is a blessing in the blindness. There is a blessing in these difficulties that hit us. And God's purpose in life is not to prevent difficulty, but rather to bring out the purpose from the difficulty. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's the purpose that, that, that drives the good. Can I, can, can I just tell you an example from my own life? And then we'll close, finish up with this, this little story. It's only going to be a couple hours long. It's all good. Um, I was born in 1980, April 2nd. Uh, no, just kidding. Uh, but no, seriously, my parents um, found Jesus just before I was born. They were on fire for God. Um, and they started going to their friend's church. Uh, they're in Port Huron, Michigan, way up north. And uh, yeah, the knuckle of the thumb is, is, how, is how we roll. And um, we started going to a church. It was a Word of Faith church. I don't know if any of you ever heard of Word of Faith church. Word of, and we do have any word of faith people? We got a couple word of faith people. All right, all the word of faith people say, woo, say glory to God, something, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're charismatic. We're excited. We're, you know, we're, we're, we, we love God. We love worship. Um, word of faith movement back in the 80s. I mean, this is back when Kenneth Copeland came on the scene. And uh, uh, yeah, he's, he's still around. Woo, uh, Marilyn, Marilyn Hickey. I don't know if you know, I always thought that was like the most unfortunate name. You know, I mean, maybe it's just my weird sense of humor, but I was like, man, I'm glad my last name isn't Hickey because that would be really unfortunate. There's a lot of things that don't go good with my first name. Hickey is one of them. Uh, you know, so Harry Hickey just wouldn't, just wouldn't, I don't think I, I, I'd have to change it. I'd have to change it. You know, but it was just, but, but it was, it was, we, we, we learned a lot about prayer. We were excited. We were, um, we learned so much about faith, about prayer, about believing, about walking by faith. Uh, we loved our pastors, Pastor uh, Cletus, and um, we were there for about nine years, uh, almost 10 years, I think it was, and uh, then Pastor Cletus and his wife, Carol, they moved to Indiana, and um, when they moved, right about the time that they moved, we were, um, we were also going through transitions in our own faith. We were uh, having some, some doctrinal disagreements with the church, and we were just, we were just growing up, right? God was growing uh, my parents, God was growing me and my brother, and um, we were just feeling that we needed to move um, on to to something else. And uh, at the same time, the, the, the pastor, he moved to Indiana. Um, the pastor's son, who I had grown very close to, my brother had grown close to, his name is Rusty, uh, Rusty and Candy. Um, we, we, we attended his prayer meetings every day. He had noon hour prayer, and uh, we'd be there for noon hour prayer every day. And my parents would, uh, my mom would drop me and my brother off. We were homeschooled. They, she'd drop us off at Rusty's office, and for like two hours every morning, he would pray. And so we would we would sit uh, in his office and uh, just listen to him pray and read A.W. Tozer, Leonard Ravenhill, No Compromise by Keith Green, well, Keith Green's wife. And, um, and uh, you know, it was that, that, that was my environment. That's where I grew up. And uh, I loved it. 
and about the same time that uh, Pastor uh, Cletus was, was moving, um, Rusty decided to move as well and go to his dad's church. He went to a church three hours away from, from our house. And so my parents decided to attend that church as well. Us and one other family drove three hours one way to go to church every Sunday for a year. And you wonder how, how, I, can, how I can get here to set up and tear down every day, because this ain't nothing uh, compared to 6.30 in the morning in Michigan. Um, it's, uh, it's actually cold. It's not, oh, 40 degrees. No, it's actually cold. Like, they're, like, like you breathe in and the, the hairs in your nose freeze. You know what I mean? Like you have to like stretch your nose a little bit. Like, like that's the kind of cold I'm, t- you, don't, you don't know nothing about that. So I'm just, just gonna leave that alone. You, you guys are like, it's, oh, it's 40 degrees. What am I gonna do? Gotta cover up my flowers. Dude, you don't have flowers when it's zero degrees outside. You know what I'm saying? Like a blanket ain't gonna help, you know what I'm saying? So anyway, I mean, that's like, we, we, we get up 6.30 in the morning, my, 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 my folks had a Pontiac Le Mans hatchback, the seats would lay down, my brother and I got our pillows and our blankets, we'd snuggle up in the back, and we'd just go to sleep for the whole ride there, they'd wake us up before we got there, we'd have some Captain Crunch in the box, right, no milk, very healthy healthy, healthy breakfast. And uh, we get there early enough, though, to change into our suit and tie, because you don't go to church like this. This is not how you go to church. It's suit and tie. And, um, and, and we go, we worship, and then we go out to eat. That's what you do. You worship, and then you eat. And so then we go out to eat, and then after we're, out, after we're done eating, then we come back to the church, and we take a nap in the nursery. So you're laying down. There's some spit up on the floor. That's okay. Just wipe it up. And then you take a nap in the nursery, and then you're ready for Sunday night church. So we went to Sunday night church, and then you go out to eat again. And then we'd be out there at the, uh, what was it, the, the Green Onion or something, the, that restaurant we always went to. And we'd be there till like 10, 11, sometimes midnight. So then we drive back and me and my brother sleeping in the back and we get home around like, like 3 a.m., 2 a.m. in the morning. My dad had to turn around and go to work at 5 a.m., right? And people wonder how my brother and I do it. I'm telling you, this ain't nothing yet. What we grew up with, the boot camp that we grew up in, let me tell you, it prepared us for church planning. Um, yeah, woo, all right, all right, all right. The word of faith people, they're excited about it. It's prepared us, it got us ready. And uh, anyway, that's not even my story, but, um, but that church, that group, um, eventually became a church in our hometown. So Rusty and his dad uh, moved back to Port Huron and we started a church in their living room. And we did not know we were church planners back in the day. It was just called having church in a living room. And so we had church in a living room and literally we stayed, we stayed small uh, for most of the, the, the duration of the church. Uh, we were there for about 13 years. We were there uh, from the time I was 10 till I was 23. And we never grew more than about 40 people. Um, one Sunday, one Easter Sunday, we had 75 people and I thought like revival was happening, you know? And um, we, just, we just never really grew that much, but we were very closely connected. We were, we were a family. It was like a big small group, honestly, like a very big small group, but it was, it was, it was awesome. And we were connected. There was relationship there. Um, uh, I was doing an internship in 2003 uh, with, with, with one of my mentors, um, uh, Pastor James Wright in West Virginia, Maranatha Fellowship. He's now one of our three overseers of the church. He's still my hero. Uh, it's just a, a great man of God. And um, I got a phone call uh, from my folks uh, in Michigan uh, saying that, uh, well, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't want to say all the details, but basically there was a a conversation, a confrontation, conversation between the pastors and them, um, that uh, the end result of it was we weren't exactly um, welcomed at that church anymore. Um, 
in a way, you know, there was a lot more to it than that. My brother and I also met with the pastors and talked about our role and things like that. And, and it just, it just wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't working out. And um, that's why I have such a heart for people who have some kind of church hurt, who've been hurt in a church. Because I know what it is to be fully committed, fully, uh, fully, fully committed. We were mowing the lawn, we were washing their vehicles and uh, just, just so close one minute and then things change pretty pretty rapidly and um there's no pastor who's perfect i'm not perfect but uh but that's part of my story what's what's interesting is that was that was uh the summer of 2003 the spring of 2003 i uh i was leading a prayer meeting at the church as i always did on sunday nights and I was getting ready to go on my internship. And um, we had a prayer meeting. Everybody gathered around me and prayed over me and sent me out. It was awesome. We were all talking afterward. And uh, I, was in jo- I was in charge of, of, of closing up the church, locking it all up. So uh, everybody's leaving. So I go back in. And um, you're not going to believe this about me, but I used to have a tambourine in church. I, had a, I was a real Christian. It was a cow hide on the front. It was tambourine. So I <laughs> you know, you just kind of get it going, you know. That's why I love William Stephanie. Stephanie's always bringing the tambourine. Somebody, you always got, every good church has a tambourine. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I remember my tambourine up there and I said, oh yeah, I better go get that because I don't want to be the slob who leaves his tambourine for six weeks. So I went up there and got it. And then I thought, you know what, uh, my, my, my friend, she sits over here because in a church that small, everybody knows where everybody sits. And so, uh, yeah, so she sits over here. So I'm going to set it under her pew. We had pews back in the day. And I'll slide under there. And then, and then I was walking back and I walked to the back and I turned off the lights and I, I heard almost an audible voice in my head say, say, take a good look around. And I was like, what? Like it was, it was, it was the strongest I'd ever heard God up to that point. It was almost like He was right behind me. I turned around and nobody was there, so I looked at the ceiling, the pews, the pulpit, and then the voice said, "Because you're not going to be back here for a long time." And it was it was so unreal that I was like, "This is obviously me being nostalgic, you know." It's and I even said out loud, "I said it's only six weeks. Being I'm gone for six weeks. That's it." And then the voice said in my ear, or 10 years. And that's when I thought, man, this is just, this is just me. I'm losing it, you know, I'm just nostalgic, you know, and I just kind of shrugged it off, locked up, went on my little uh, internship. And then I get a call from my folks. And then later on, I meet with the pastor and, and all this stuff. And... Um, I was there with, with Pastor Wright, and uh, we were at Maranatha, we were in the foyer, and I, I felt like I needed to share it with him, but I gave him the quick, super quick version. I said, look, have you heard about my family leaving the church? And, and he said, no. And so I said, well, this kind of, you know, this, this is just the two minute version. And I said, I'm not really sure how to think about that. And he just kind of went, huh. And he stood up and walked to go into church. And so he's standing there at the door and I'm like, uh, okay. So I'm just standing with him. I don't know what to do. So I'm just standing there with him. And he turns to me and he says, well, it's not like you're going back there anyway. And he goes in. (laughs) I was a little bit offended because I was going back there. Actually, it's exactly like that. I mean, that's entirely what it's like. It is not like anything else but that. That is what it's like. I have a plan. Like I've been working with this church since I was 10 years old. I preached my first sermon there. The pastor mentored me. The pastor's dad taught and tutored me in New Testament Greek for five years. By the time I was 12 to 17, I mean, I'm like, I'm committed. I'm going back there. 
I'm going to Bible college now, and then I'm going to come back. I'm going to be on staff, and I'm going to take over, and we're going to, we're going to change Port Huron. It's going to be awesome. And he's like, it's not like you're going back. It's just the way that he said I was like, how can you be so careless when I'm hurting? So I went in and sat down. Everybody's standing up worshiping. I'm sitting there. i am got a bad attitude, and I'm like, God, I... I was going back there. And that's when he reminded me. He said, well, I already told you that you weren't. He said, why are you mad at him for just repeating what I said? And he reminded me about that little thing at the end of prayer. And and it's amazing. It's amazing how... When you can focus on the purpose instead of the premise, you release all bitterness. Because nobody messed up your life. Because because I thought I was going to be there forever. That's what I had in my head. I had no idea that there were people in South Austin that were waiting for me to get out of there. I had no idea the promised land was waiting for me to get out of there. I had no idea what God had in store with everything that all the places that I would be because I thought I was supposed to be there. But God said, no, you need to leave there. But God even knew I wouldn't leave there on my own because even when he spoke to me as clear as he ever had, I thought I was just, you know, thinking to myself, I, it was so out of my box. And when you understand the purpose of why you are where you are not 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 the premise not the motive not he said this and then they talked to so-and-so and then they talked to so-and-so and then they got these people on their side and and you, you you can you can you can drive yourself nuts trying to figure out how you got to where you got but when God speaks to you and you understand that he actually has a plan to bring you to some place from where you are when you can release all bitterness because why would you be mad at somebody for helping you get to where God wanted you to go how can, how can you hold that against somebody they helped me get out of Port Huron never would have got out then you can see all the beauty all the contributions they made other than that the tutoring in the Greek the patience with me, training me in ministry, teaching me how to pray, teaching me how to love. Yeah, there was this one disagreement. There was this one thing that happened, but there was a whole lot of good also. So my brother and I started, we, we just go visit like on Christmas. We'd be home for Christmas. We'd go over to their house, just hang out. And, and uh, you, can, you, can, you can just release it because it's like, you know, there's no perfect pastor. I'm not going to be a perfect pastor. I'm probably going to say some stuff I probably shouldn't say. I'm probably going to handle things a little differently than I should handle them. I'm not going to be super sensitive all the time. There's going to be issues. But, but when you realize that those issues don't sabotage God's purpose, it's okay. And so we, we met with them occasionally. I'd always go over to ML's every, uh, his, his dad, every Christmas Eve, M, uh, M, ML and Ish. I introduced them to Roe and they got to know our kids. And then uh, I think it was 2003 or just before 2000, it was like 10 years later, just about, I was home visiting for Christmas and I got a call on Saturday night from Pastor Rusty. He said, Harry, I heard you're in town. I'm like, how'd you get my number? (laughs) He's like, well, you know, would you like to come preach for us tomorrow? And I said, yeah, that'd be awesome. And so I was so busy thinking about what I was going to say that I forgot about 
the whole 10 year thing until I was there standing there in worship. And it was the same people, same, uh, I think I counted 13 people. There were some people that, that, that were missing, but it was mostly, it was all the same folks I grew up with, all the same folks. And just we reconnected with them. And I got to stand up and share about how God had taken me from, God had taken me. God had taken me from Port Huron to Tennessee. God had taken me from Tennessee to Texas. And look what God's done. Look at this. Like sometimes it's the blindness that helps you see. Sometimes it's the difficulty that puts God's work on display. It's like, look at, look, look at what God, look how faithful God is. Look at this. I, I had no idea what I was going to do when we, when we left slash got asked to leave. I had no idea where I would go. And look, God knew exactly. And so I can just embrace people. And, and it was a great time of just hugging and, and catching up and sharing stories. And, and it was awesome. But it becomes part of the purpose of God. All things work together to them who love God and are called according to His purpose. Let me, let me ask you a question. Do you see the purpose of God in your story? Or are you still fixated on the premise? You're still trying to assign blame. You're still trying to figure out who did something wrong that made this thing not work the way it's supposed to work. Because that, that'll drive you nuts. You'll never, you'll never figure it out. You'll never get over it. You'll never move on. You'll never take the next step. The next step is all about the purpose of God. God says, look, yeah, this happened. I allowed it to happen. And I love the fact that God spoke to me beforehand because that helped me know that he knew it was going to happen. He wasn't caught by surprise. He wasn't like, oh no, <laughs> what are we gonna do? Plan B, plan B, angels, do we have a plan B? No, he knew and he told me about it so that I would know that he knew. I feel like God's speaking to somebody even here right now saying, I knew. spoke to you anyway. I knew and I called you anyway. Sometimes it's not mistakes of others. Sometimes it's our own mistakes trip us up. We have a hard time forgiving ourselves for the way we think we sabotaged everything. But no, he knew. And he called you anyway. All the dreams he placed in your heart, put them there anyway. As if his purposes were strong enough to handle and even work through the blindness. This blindness was so that the works of God could be on display. Lord, we ask you to reveal the works of God to us today. Let it be on display. In us, the works of forgiveness, the works of repentance, the works of 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 greatness that you're putting inside of us and digging out of us. We ask for you to put it on display. We've spent far too long trying to figure out how we could prevent everything. And now, Lord, we just look for your hand in everything. You are working. You are moving. You said that you must work while it is day. You are working.
Amen. Amen. We're going to uh, take up our tithes and offerings at this time. That's for our regular tenders. If you're new, we just want you to drop off that info card. Let us know um, how we can pray for you. Let us know uh, that you are here and uh, we can, that way we can reach out to you. We're glad that you joined us. We're glad that you came and fellowshiped with us. We hope that the Lord is speaking to you. Uh, if you need more prayer, please fill that out on the card. If you need somebody to reach out to you this week, please write that down on the card. Give us your phone number. We'll call you. We'll meet up with you. We'll walk with you through this journey. It's our privilege to do so. Um, reach out to some folks. Reach out to Janie. Check in on her. See how she's, she's doing. Um, different people uh, going through stuff. So let's reach out to them. Let's pray for them as a family. And uh, don't let anybody just slip through the cracks. Lord, thank you for those who are giving. For those who are giving online, those who are giving here in the, in the school. We pray that you bless them as they give. We give to you. We don't give to a man or to a church. We give to God. It's our joy. It's our privilege to sacrifice for God, to lay down our lives for God, to see his works manifest here in South Austin. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and pass the buckets while they're doing that. Um, yeah, there we go. There's there's another way to give also, which we've been talking about. Uh, that uh, if you'd like to give via your phone, you can do that. You can text any. You can text the word "give" plus any amount to that number. And uh, example, give fifty, um, and that will set up some giving through your phone, uh, through your own debit card. Um, but also that same number is the number to text if you're interested in the Freedom Ministry. So if you're interested in attending that Freedom Small Group that Poppy talked about. Text FREEDOM to that number, 512-960-1617. If you text FREEDOM to that number, you'll get put into a certain box on the website, and Poppy will reach out to you. She'll connect with you, get you plugged in. Um, we, we really believe that that's a good next step for everyone. Whether you've been saved for 30 years or 30 minutes, it's time to walk, step into freedom. Uh, would you stand with me? And uh, I just dismiss you. Have a great week. I love you. It's good to see you. Um, if you want, stick around and help us tear down. We're going to pick up all these chairs and put this thing back into a, into a cafeteria. But um, anyway, have a good week. Stay safe.